Welcome to Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. I'm Laura Nyrider. And I'm Steve Drizzen. Sometimes farm life isn't as tranquil as it seems. Today we take you to small-town Nebraska, where two murders shattered a peaceful Easter Sunday. This is the story of Matt Livers, a case with more plot twists than I've ever seen. A coerced confession, dirty cops who planted evidence, and a mysterious clue that led to a pair of natural-born killers. This story gives Tarantino a run for his money. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Horrible crimes can happen anywhere, even where you least expect it. And if you've learned one thing by listening to this podcast, I hope it's that false confessions can also happen anywhere and anytime. I want them to learn a second thing. It's that a confession is only as good as the evidence that corroborates it. And in this case, it looked like there was perfect corroboration. There was evidence that seemed to prove the confession true. But what happens when new evidence surfaces that causes the confession to unravel, that makes the narrative seem to be false. What do you do when a case like this starts falling apart? Do you double down or do you fix it up? Today's story begins in Murdoch, Nebraska. It's a tiny town about halfway between Lincoln and Omaha. Murdoch is barely more than a few dozen homes, surrounded by fields of corn and the occasional outlying farmhouse. The population, just 269 people, only 66 families. 
And one of Murdoch's most respected families was the Stokes, headed by Wayne and Sharman Stoke, both in their mid-50s, when our story starts on Easter Sunday, 2006. Now, Wayne and Sharman were good people, God-fearing, well-known Murdoch residents who lived in an immaculate farmhouse near town. Wayne was a successful businessman. For years, he'd run the Stoke Hay Company, growing, bundling, selling hay to all the local farmers. And Sharman was a teacher's aide. She ran a popular cake business out of their home. So it's that Easter Sunday, April 16, 2006. It unfolded like many holidays for the Stokes. It was a family occasion. That morning, Wayne and Sharman went to church, followed by Easter traditions, right? They had brunch with their family. They had an Easter egg hunt with their grandkids. It was a lovely but unremarkable day. And Wayne and Sharman went to sleep that night in their farmhouse as usual. The next day, April 17th, rolls around. Wayne and Sharman are early risers, but when their adult son Andy arrives at the farmhouse about 9 a.m., he doesn't see any sign of his parents. He goes inside, he moves through the tidy but silent first floor. He goes upstairs, and he finds the worst. His dad's body in a blood-spattered second-floor hallway. Wayne's head had nearly been blown away by a gunshot blast. Now Andy calls the police, and the Cass County police arrive. Murdoch's way too small to have its own police force. And soon enough, investigators find a double tragedy. Not only is Wayne dead, but Sharman's body is found in the bedroom, wedged between the bedside and the wall. She's been shot in the head, too, and a phone cord is wrapped around her body, like maybe she'd been trying to call for help. This was a double murder of the worst kind, something that Murdoch, Nebraska, had never seen before. Seasoned crime scene veterans and officers in the area looked at this crime scene and it made them physically ill. They had never seen so much carnage before, certainly not in Murdoch, Nebraska. Exactly. So as local police are processing this scene, processing this trauma that they're seeing in front of them, they realize they're in a bit over their heads. So they call in the big guns. They call in the Crime Scene Investigation Division of the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. It's basically the state's leading crime scene forensic experts. Now, the investigators find several items of interest at the scene. They find shells from a 12-gauge shotgun that are littered around the whole area. They find a silver flashlight with blood on it. And sitting in the Stokes driveway, there's a red and silver marijuana pipe. Now, both the flashlight and the marijuana pipe are potentially DNA testable. There's also a damaged window in the Stokes laundry room. It suggests that maybe somebody had broken into the house. And inside, police observe in the blood spray that had been left on the wall, there's a human silhouette. It implies that there had been two people present, one to shoot and one to get sprayed by all that blood. What a visual, a blood-sprayed human silhouette. Exactly. It's, it's like a movie scene. And on the otherwise spotless kitchen floor, police find a golden ring with an unusual inscription, an inscription that didn't seem to relate to anyone in the Stoke family. It said, Love Always, Corey and Ryan. There's no signs that anything's been stolen from the house. Wayne and Charmin's children can't pinpoint anything that seems to be missing. That leads the police officers to believe that this crime was not some random break-in, but that it was personal, that it was an act of vengeance, and that whoever slaughtered the Stokes had an axe to grind with them. 
police start asking Stoke family relatives who might have wanted to harm Wayne and Sharman. And some of Sharman's family members start wondering out loud about the person they thought of as the black sheep of the family, Sharman's nephew, Matt Livers. Matt was 28 years old and had no criminal record whatsoever, but he'd had his share of challenges because of his severe mental limitations. Matt had struggled with getting through school as a boy and trying to hold down a job as an adult. The Stokes were a family that prided themselves on their success, and by their standards, Matt Livers stuck out like a sore thumb. He'd also argued recently with Wayne and Sharman about whether he was getting a sufficient share of a family inheritance. And it was this feud that made police focus on Matt as a suspect in the Stokes murder. At about 10.45 p.m. on the day that the Stokes' bodies are discovered, the police decide to interview Matt Livers. The interrogation lasts four hours until almost three o'clock in the morning. But Matt tells the cops he's there to cooperate, and he has only good things to say about the Stokes. He downplays this idea of a family feud, and that makes officers suspicious. And he does what many people who are innocent do. He says, I want to cooperate. Take my DNA. Take my hair. Take my saliva. Take my fingerprints. I'll even come back for a polygraph. I had nothing to do with this. I'm an open book. And based on all that, for the time being, Matt Livers is released. Meanwhile, the police are interviewing others, too, and they do get a lead, right? There's a local newspaper carrier who tells the police that he had seen a car parked near the Stokes property on the morning of the murders. It's a tan, four-door, mid-size sedan. Now, this guy doesn't know whether the vehicle was related to the crime or not, but he did recall seeing an O in the license plate. You know, Matt Livers drives a red convertible, but his cousin, Will Sampson, drove a tan four-door Ford Contour, which made investigators become suspicious. Now, Will's Contour didn't have an O in its license plate, but oddly enough, it had been professionally cleaned and detailed right after the murders. And that gave the police reason enough to want to search Will's car They even go to the auto detail shop itself. They go through the vacuum bags that were used when Will's car was cleaned. But they find zero incriminating evidence. Now, this is strange. The crime scene was incredibly bloody. It would have been almost impossible, even for the most professional detailers, to erase every molecule of evidence. But the investigators found nothing. Despite all this, police are still suspicious. Now they discover that Will Sampson, the guy who owns the contour, did have an alibi on Easter night, which is when the crime presumably occurred. But Nick Sampson, another one of Matt Liver's cousins, did not have an alibi. And soon enough, Matt Liver's and Nick Sampson become the prime suspects. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. 
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fast forward to eight days after the Stokes bodies are discovered. It's April 25th. Police ask Matt to come in for questioning a second time. But this time they take him an hour away to the Cass County Law Enforcement Center. He is held there for questioning a total of 11 hours, most of it video recorded. Now, Matt doesn't know it at the time, but he wasn't going to return home for months. Because here comes the interrogation, the line of questioning designed to break Matt Livers. Let's just get this out of here, okay? We don't want you. You're involved in this up to your ears. You were involved in it. We need to know what happened. As typical in these interrogations, the investigators start by accusing Matt of killing his aunt and uncle. It's not whether or not you committed this crime, they say. We already know that. You have to tell us why you committed this crime. 
And Matt denies it, right? He says, I'm not that kind of person. All I remember is sleeping in my bed that night. I didn't have anything to do with this. I did not. He goes on to deny and deny and deny 86 times. And then, just as in so many other cases, he offers to try to prove his own innocence. He agrees to take a polygraph, which the police build up to him as foolproof. You answer questions, and the questions that you're honest about show that you're honest. Matt takes the exam. He's excited. He thinks he's going to pass the exam, and this will all be over. But the polygrapher comes into the room and tells him that he had failed this test miserably. This way, when he continues denying his involvement, the police can point to his test results as evidence of his guilt. They tell him that these polygraph charts leave absolutely no doubt. And holding the results in his hand, the Nebraska State Patrol officer says to Matt, We ask you a question that specifically has to do with the death of Wayne. You fly off the chart. Now, this is a lie. Like in so many of these other cases, Matt did not actually fail this polygraph exam. It was confirmed after the fact by a polygraph expert. But we know, as always, that police are allowed to lie during interrogations, and that's what they're doing here, lying to him about lying again. It's like seeing the same script play out over and over and over again in these stories. The whole point is to bring Matt Livers down to this place of hopelessness. Nebraska is a death penalty state. So what do the interrogators do? They introduce the idea to Matt that he's going to get the death penalty unless he confesses to this crime. If he doesn't, then they promise him they're going to go the hard route. And they get graphic. They get specific. When I first saw this tape, my jaw dropped. Matt Livers is told by one of the Cass County investigators that he's going to personally make sure that Matt is executed for this crime if he doesn't confess. If I walk out that door and you don't admit to me exactly what you've done, I'm going to do my level best to hang your ass from the highest tree. I'm going to do my level best to hang your ass from the highest tree. You're done. You are done. I'll go after the death penalty. I will go after the death penalty. They're reciting all the different ways the death penalty can be administered. Electric chair, gas, lethal injection. They tell him his ass is on the line and you're in the frying pan right now. I'll push and I'll push until I get everything I need Make no mistake about it, Matt is beginning to break down. And make no mistake about this as well. These investigators know that Matt has intellectual disabilities. Exactly. He's giving them these really clear signals during the interrogation that he's limited. At one point, one of the police says to him, you know, many people have tried and failed to outsmart us. Matt turns to him and assures him that he's not trying to do that. I'm dumb as a brick, he says. And when one of the interrogators urges Matt to confess, to stand up and to be a man, Matt takes him literally. He is a concrete thinker, and he interprets that to actually mean that he's going to stand up and get up out of his chair. These are terribly frightening, terribly coercive interrogation tactics, and it's not the way someone with these kinds of disabilities should be questioned. I am so tired of law enforcement officers pretending that they didn't know the person they were interrogating had some disabilities. This willful ignorance on their part has got to stop. There were strong signs that they were dealing with somebody who was disabled. 
And they just treated him like he was any other normal adult. And they plowed ahead and used the same tactics and got false confessions. This pressure builds, actually goes on for about six and a half hours until we start to see signs that Matt is finally beginning to crack under the pressure. He looks up at his interrogators and he says, all I want to do is go home. Now the interrogators take that as their cue and they start telling Matt that he must have been tired of being put down, shut out, kept out of the family inheritance by his aunt and uncle. And slowly, Matt begins to respond affirmatively, agree with a series of leading questions from officers who literally start walking him through the story. The truth is you got a gun, right or wrong. And you took that gun back to your Uncle Wayne and Aunt Charmin's house, right? Eventually, they come around to the murder itself. And you fired a shot at your Uncle Wayne. Matt gives a series of one-word rote answers agreeing to the suggestions of these interrogators about how this crime took place. I already know the answers to these questions. They've scripted it, and Matt is just agreeing to it. You know, you listen to this, and you get the impression that if the next question was, and this crime happened on the moon, right, Matt? He would say right, too. He was that much under their control. And you walked upstairs in their house after hours. Originally, he takes sole responsibility for the murders. But remember, these investigators have good reason to think that at least two people were involved in the crime. Right, because of the silhouette and the blood-sprayed wall. So after another lengthy series of questioning, Matt finally implicates his cousin Nick Sampson, too, saying that it was Nick that gave him the murder weapon and the keys to the Ford Contour. Based on this statement... Both Matt Livers and Nick Sampson are arrested and charged with murder. Now, the very next day, Matt is facing yet another polygraph exam, right? Questioning is continuing for him even after he's arrested and charged. But the very next day, he recants on videotape the whole thing. He says, you know, I've just been making things up to satisfy you guys and basically fitting in answers to what you guys have been asking. He later explained to a court-appointed psychologist that he confessed because he wanted to go home. Case closed. This is front-page news in both Lincoln and in Omaha. We got our men. Exactly. They're facing charges, both in the courtroom and the court of public opinion. But the case against them is problematic because there's no physical evidence implicating them. Police try to match those 12-gauge casings that they found at the crime scene to a shotgun that they found in Nick Sampson's bedroom. But there is no match. What about the marijuana pipe that they found in the Stokes driveway? Well, there was DNA on it, and it excluded both Matt and Nick. And the same thing goes for that strange golden ring that was found in the Stokes kitchen. It did contain DNA from two unknown people, but that DNA did not belong to Nick or Matt. The police were in desperate need of some corroboration for Matt Liver's confession. So what do they do? They call in David Kofod. Now, David Kofod was the commander of the Douglas County Sheriff CSI unit. He's widely viewed as a statewide law enforcement hero. 
He was also a shameless self-promoter. <laughs> he was not only a legend in law enforcement circles, but he was also a legend in his own mind. <laughs> right. David was the guy who had the magic touch. He had a reputation for closing cases by finding forensic evidence that all the other officers had overlooked. And David Kofod was brought in and asked to take a second look at Will Sampson's Ford Contour. Now, Kofod examines the contour personally, and true to his reputation, he claims to have found blood under the dash. He swabs the blood, and it tests positive. The blood belongs to Wayne Stoke. The case against Matt Livers and Nick Sampson just became devastating, or so it seemed. Meanwhile, other officers were continuing their investigation, and they focused on that strange golden ring from the Stokes' kitchen. Now, there were two marks on that ring. The first one was the inscription that we already talked about, love always, Corey and Ryan. But there was also a jeweler's mark on the inside of that ring, a mark made by the manufacturer. And police were able to trace that mark to a jeweler in New York. This jewelry business is going out of business. And the Nebraska investigator calls up and gets a woman on the phone who is closing down the office. And she says, can you help me track this ring? Where did this ring go after it was manufactured? And do you have any idea about this inscription? And on the day before this jeweler is literally closing its doors in New York, its employees tell investigators that that ring was shipped off to a Walmart in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, where it was purchased by a woman named Corey for her boyfriend, Ryan. Had this phone call come a day later? They may never have been able to trace that ring. And we might never know who actually killed Wayne and Sharman Stoke. It was a miracle. It was a break. And it was a break that was generated by really good police work. Unbelievable. They trace this ring then from Nebraska to New York to Wisconsin, where they discover the story about Gregory Fester and Jessica Reed stealing the truck in which the ring had been left. Now, who are these two? Jessica Reed grew up in Wisconsin in a small town called Horicon. Jessica was an honors student when she fell in love with Greg, who was an older, really troubled teenager. And the more detectives dug into Greg and Jessica, the more there was to learn. It turns out they'd stolen a 12-gauge shotgun and the pickup truck where Corey and Ryan had left that golden ring. Greg and Jessica had gone on a drug-fueled interstate crime spree, breaking into houses in rural Iowa and Nebraska. They eventually ran out of money and abandoned the truck in Louisiana on April 18th. Somehow they made it back to Wisconsin, where they were arrested a week later for car theft. Police question Greg and Jessica and begin connecting the dots. According to Jessica, she and Greg started their bender in Wisconsin and were passing through Nebraska when the truck began running out of gas. They were tired, cranky, coming down from a cough syrup high and looking for a house to rob. That's when Greg and Jessica came across the Stoke home in Murdoch. Greg goes in through a downstairs window, Jessica said, and he lets her in at the front door. They go upstairs and are confronted by Wayne and Sharman Stoke. Greg lifts up his shotgun and he fires once at Wayne, hitting him in the knee. He and Jessica back out of the room. They get into the hallway and Jessica looks at Greg and says, do something. So one of them goes back into the room. We don't know which one. 
and finishes Wayne off with a shotgun blast at close range to the back of his head. Meanwhile, Charmin is calling the police, and one of these two natural-born killers opens fire on Charmin and shoots her in the face, and her body falls down next to the bed, and it's wedged between the bed and the wall. Greg and Jessica don't steal a thing. They just get out of that farmhouse, get back into their vehicle, and drive off into the night. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Jessica's story smacked of truth, and it was soon corroborated. Wisconsin detectives send Jessica and Greg's DNA to Nebraska, and lo and behold, their DNA was consistent with the DNA on the marijuana pipe and on the golden ring. Investigators also found Wayne Stokes' blood in the truck and on clothes and shoes that had belonged to both Greg and Jessica. They even found a chilling entry in Jessica Reed's diary. I killed someone, she wrote. I loved it. I wish I could do it all the time. And they find a cigarette box in Jessica's home containing a letter to Greg and a spent 12-gauge shell casing from the murders. In the letter, she wrote, This was something I did for you, for you to love me as much as I love you. This is a crazy story. It's something straight out of Natural Born Killers. This was a thrill kill by two drug-crazed teens who actually thought they were in Iowa, not Nebraska. Needless to say, the discovery of Jessica and Greg upends the case against Matt Livers and Nick Sampson. After Jessica and Greg are arrested and implicated in the Stoke murders, Nebraska investigators travel out to Wisconsin to question them. And they do so because Jessica and Greg are telling a story that doesn't involve Matt Livers and Nick Sampson. So they play the same card they played with Livers. Wisconsin is not a death penalty state, they say, but Nebraska is. And if you don't come clean to having committed this crime with Matt and Nick, we're going to seek the death penalty against you as well. And for a brief moment, Jessica comes up with a wild story about how she had met Nick Sampson at a bar and had gone with them into the Stoke House. But she immediately recants once those Nebraska investigators leave the room. As soon as she's alone with this Wisconsin investigator, she says to him, these guys keep wanting me to pin this murder on two people I have never met. During one of my many searches of cases with the words false confession, I came upon this case, and I knew the psychologist who had been hired by Matt Livers' attorney, Julie Baer. So I reached out to Julie and played a sort of behind-the-scenes consulting role. She didn't need me. This case was beginning to crash on its own. That psychologist Steve knew? His name is Scott Bressler. Scott's report for the defense team gave a fuller picture of the motivations behind Matt's confession. I have results that clearly showed that Matt was very vulnerable and low-functioning and had personality characteristics in which he wants to please other people, wants to be compliant with other people, and has a very low tolerance for stress. And when he didn't do well on particular kinds of tests, it's because he didn't understand it. So he would make up stuff, which is interesting because he confabulated the whole scenario that the police took hook, line, and sinker, which they thought indicated that he was guilty. Scott also presented his analysis of Matt's personality to an expert from the prosecution side. And that expert was shocked by what he saw. And he said, oh, my God, I, you know, I think that this is a real false confession. It becomes clear Jessica and Greg committed this crime on their own. So I'm at this meeting with the prosecuting attorney, and he's visibly emotionally shaken by everything that's happened. Right after that meeting ended, he announced his decision to release Matt 
So I was right there when Matt walked out of jail, when all the press were there and saw you know, Matt's reaction to seeing his family. And uh, of course, he gave me a big hug and thanked me. It was a very emotional scene. You know, this case shows the difference between bad police work and good police work. On the one hand, we have cops trying to solve this case by breaking an obviously vulnerable man through an insanely coercive interrogation. Compare that to the gumshoe investigator who focused on the physical evidence. That investigator traced the golden ring to the New York jewelers, which led to the Wisconsin Walmart, which led to Corey and Ryan and their pickup truck getting stolen with a ring in the glove compartment. And that twisted path finally ends with Greg and Jessica. That's great police work. And we know it's great because, in fact, Greg and Jessica's DNA and forensic evidence was found all over the scene. We know they're guilty because the science tells us that they are. Without that dogged investigative work, these two young men very well might have been on death row. Both Jessica and Greg went on to be prosecuted for the murders of Wayne and Sharman Stoke. They were convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But hang on a second, because there's one other question here, right? What about that blood stain in the Ford Contour? How did that blood stain get there if the car had nothing to do with this crime? Well, it turns out the blood had been planted by none other than the state's star crime scene investigator himself, David Kofod. Turns out the guy with the magic touch was, in this case, little more than a fraud. Nebraska prosecutors ended up charging Kofod with planting that blood in the contour. He was convicted and sentenced to spend between 20 months and four years behind bars. Prosecutors called it poetic justice. Let's talk a little bit about David Kofod because he's one of the interesting figures in this case. You know, why would someone do something like this? He literally framed two innocent men by claiming that he'd found Wayne Stokes' blood in the contour. This is what happens when someone believes that the end that they're pursuing is just and that therefore they can cut corners and do unethical things in service of the just goal. I don't buy that. He did this because he never imagined that that confession would be false. So he figured, I'll just strengthen the case and I'll get away with it and I'll be a hero and nobody will think twice about it. But he got caught. Thank God for that. I helped Matt Livers get an attorney to bring a civil suit against the Cass County officers and the others involved in his arrest. When that case settled, something was said by Nebraska Attorney General John Bruning that bothers me to this day. He said, the only reason we're settling this civil suit is because of David Kofod's criminal activity. My investigators did nothing wrong here. They acted honorably. Nothing could be further from the truth. They threatened Matt Livers with the death penalty to get him to confess. They threatened Jessica Reed with the death penalty to get her to implicate Livers and Sampson. There's nothing honorable here about what these detectives did. Jessica Reed was more honorable than they were. She told the truth. Believe it or not, in the annals of false confessions, there are other cases 
of people who have been wrongfully convicted only later to be exonerated when it turns out that people on a multi-state crime spree are responsible. I mean, that's the interesting thing about so many cases that we're talking about on this podcast, because you have innocent people going down for these horrific crimes based on false confessions, while people who really need to be stopped, right, whether they're serial rapists... Or serial killers. Right, are out there doing terrible things while the innocent person does their time. Justice was eventually done here, but for Matt and for Nick... Scars remain. Matt moved to Texas, but the legacy of these murders still haunts him. His relationship with Nick and other family members has been forever frayed. Nick Sampson drifted apart from his cousin. He could never accept that Matt had falsely implicated him during that interrogation. Both of them sued the state of Nebraska and ended up recovering some compensation for their ordeal. Although, of course, nothing can properly repay them for the harm that they underwent. Matt... Nick, you both endured ordeals that would test anyone. Your stories stand both as a warning for those police officers who want to breach trust and cut corners, but also as a testament to the justice that can be brought by good police work, the work done by those who trace that golden ring to Greg and Jessica. We wish you peace and happy futures. Thanks for listening as we've told the story of Matt Livers and Nick Sampson. Next week, we're going to tackle the story of Tana Pora, a story that hails all the way from New Zealand because false confessions aren't just a problem here in the U.S. It's a global problem. Until then, thanks for listening to Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Special thanks to our executive producer, Jason Flom, and the team at Signal Company Number 1, executive producer Kevin Wardus, senior producer Ann Pope, and additional production and editing by Connor Hall. Our music was composed by Jay Ralph. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Laura Nyrider. And you can follow me on Twitter at S. Drizzen. For more information on the show, visit wrongfulconvictionpodcast.com. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram at wrongfulconviction, on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast, and on Twitter at wrongconviction. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is 
finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.